0: Ellen Hay, I'm Professor of Public International Law at the Erasmus School of Law, Erasmus University in Rotterdam. This lecture is about the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities in international environmental law. By way of introduction, I will briefly discuss the broader context of the principle in international law. And thereafter, I will discuss the content of the principle in international environmental law, the institutional and decision-making context in which the principle functions, the broader setting in which the principle operates, its legal status, and by way of conclusion, I will evaluate the significance of the principle. I would like to point out that the text, the legal instruments that I'm referring to in this lecture, are also available on a document which is available on the site for the lecture. The principle of common but differentiated responsibilities in international environmental law entails that while we're pursuing A common goal, states take on different obligations depending on their socioeconomic situation and their present and historical contribution to the environmental problem at stake. Especially since the 1990s, the principle has become prominent in international environmental law. However, differentiating on the basis of socioeconomic situations of states is not unique to international environmental law. Its origins can be traced to the early 20th century. Article 405, third paragraph, of the 1919 Versailles Peace Treaty constitutes an early expression of the principle. It is identical to current Article 19, paragraph 3 of the Constitution of the International Labour Organization, which provides that in framing labour conventions or recommendations, due regard shall be given to and I quote, those countries in which climatic conditions, the imperfect development of industrial organization, or other special circumstances make the industrial conditions substantially different, end of quote. Such conditions may provide a basis for modifying the general rules formulated in an ILO convention or recommendation and some ILO conventions implement Article 19, Paragraph 3 of the Constitution by way of exceptions that a state may claim based on insufficient development of its economy or relevant social infrastructure. A relevant example is Article 7 of ILO Convention 183 on Maternity Protection of 2000. It provides an example by allowing states, by way of exception, not to apply certain elements of the Convention. Moreover, international trade law has since the conclusion of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade in 1947 recognized the special position of developing states in its Article 18. This special position has found broader reflection in the agreement establishing the World Trade Organization including in the amended Article 18 and in Part 4 of the GATT agreement. Within the WTO, the different treatment of developing states, besides facilitating technical assistance and capacity building, entails that mutual reciprocity in trade concessions, an important tenant of international trade law, may be released in the relationship between developing and developed states. Such releases are subject to negotiation between developing and developing s- developed and developing states, and the resulting preferential treatment is often of limited duration. In addition, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea contains various references to the special position of developing states. Relevant examples are some of the f- provisions on fishing, for example, Articles sixty-three, paragraph. Sorry, 61, paragraph 3, and article 62. In addition, of course, part 11 on the regime of the international seabed area also differentiates between developing and developed states. In international environmental law, the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities is expressed in principle 12 of the 1972 Declaration of the United Nations Conference on the Human Environment, the so-called Stockholm Declaration, and in Principles 6 and 7 of the 1992 Declaration of the United Nations Conference on the Environment and Development, the so-called Rio Declaration. The principle more often since the 1970s is implicitly reflected in the provisions of most multilateral environmental agreements in terms of at least provisions on technical cooperation and assistance. I will now turn to the content of the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities in international environmental law. The Rio Declaration currently provides the most generally accepted formulation of the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities. The first sentence of paragraph six of the Rio Declaration provides, and I quote, The special situation and needs of developing countries, particularly the least developed and most environmentally vulnerable, shall be given special priority." End of quote. Principle 7 of the Rio Declaration then expressly formulates the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities, and it provides as follows. And again, I quote, States shall cooperate in a spirit of global partnership to conserve, protect, and restore the health and integrity of the Earth's ecosystem. In view of the different contributions to global environmental res- degradation, states have common but differentiated responsibilities. The developed countries acknowledge the responsibility that they bear in view of the pressures their societies place on the global environment and of the technologies and financial resources they command. End of quote. These provisions point to the core of what constitutes the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities in international environmental law. First, a global partnership linked to the duty to cooperate. Within that global partnership, states take on obligations, even if those obligations are different. And those obligations are based on their situation as determined especially by A, their vulnerability and their needs. B, their historical contribution to environmental degradation. C, their present contribution to the problem. And D, the access to technology and financial resources that are available to states. The principle of common but differentiated responsibilities is closely related to this principle of sustainable development and also to the principle of intra-generational equity. The principle of sustainable development addresses the need to balance socioeconomic considerations and the protection of the environment. The principle of intra-generational equity addresses equity among members of a generation and is particularly relevant in the South-North context. The interrelationship between the Three principles can be characterized as follows. With a view to attaining sustainable development, the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities constitutes a means of translating the principle of intergenerational equity to the interstate level and to the interstate south-north context in particular. Most multilateral environmental agreements do not explicitly refer to the principle of common but differentiated responsibility. Instead, they contain substantive obligations that serve to implement the principle. The 1992 United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, however, is an exception. Its Article 3, entitled Principles, in its first paragraph, provides as follows, and I quote, The parties should protect the climate system for the benefit of present and future generations of humankind, and on the basis of equity and in accordance with their common but differentiated responsibility and respective capabilities. Accordingly, developed country parties should take the lead in combating climate change and the adverse effects thereof. However, even if the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change is the only multilateral environmental agreement that explicitly refers to the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities, all multilateral environmental agreements presently implement the principle, and they do so in a variety of ways. And I will refer to five ways in which multilateral environmental agreements implement the principle. A first example is provided by multilateral agreements, which may include a grace period for developing states. A pertinent example is Article 5, Paragraph 1 of the 1987 Montreal Protocol to the Vienna Convention on the depletion of the ozone layer. It allows developing states a period of 10 years before they must comply with certain substantive rules of the protocol. A second example is multilateral environmental agreements which provide substantive obligations only for developed and economy in transition states. The 1997 Kyoto Protocol provides an example. It requires developed and economy in transition states and not developing states to comply with agreed greenhouse gas emission reductions see in particular Article 3, and even more in particular Article 3, Paragraph 1 of the protocol, and also it's Annex 1. A third example is uh, provided by multilateral environmental agreements, which in almost all cases, make implementation by developing states conditional on the transfer of technology and financial means from developed states. Uh, you might look at Article 4, Paragraph 7 of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change or Article 20, Paragraph 4 of the Convention on Biological Diversity. And the provisions requiring the transfer of technology and financial means from developed to developing states to a larger degree are implemented through so-called financial mechanisms. Again, if you want to look at a provision, at a relevant provision, look at Article 21 of the Convention on Biological Diversity, or, again, Article 21, but this time of the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification. Now, these financial mechanisms are, to a large extent, so the financial mechanisms which implement the obligation of um, developed states to transfer financial means and technology to developing states, The mechanisms through which this is realized, to a large extent, are linked to the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, also known as the World Bank. A fourth example is provided by multilateral environmental agreements, which provide special substantive rules for the relationship between developing and developed states. And in this case, the 1995 amendment to the Basel Convention on the Control of Transboundary Movements of Hazardous Waste and Their Disposal provides an example. The amendment to the convention bans the transboundary movement of hazardous waste between developed and developing states. Now, please note that this amendment has not entered into force in July 2010, the time of recording. This means that decision 2-12 2-12 of the Conference of the Parties to the Basel Convention applies. And this decision also bans the transboundary movement of hazardous waste between developed and developing states, even if it's not legally binding. Lastly, fifthly, the compliance mechanisms that function within the context of most multilateral environmental agreements provide that in case of non-compliance the state may be offered assistance in order to bring it back into compliance with the agreement. These provisions, of course, benefit developing states and states with economies in transition and not developed states. I now turn to the institutional and decision-making context in which the principle operates. In fact, the principle of common but differentiated responsibility is at the source of a very complex institutional and decision-making structure that is applicable in international environmental law especially in the South-North context. At the basis of this structure are the various multilateral environmental agreements such as the Convention on Biological Diversity, the UNFCCC, uh, the Convention to Combat Desertification and many others. These multilateral environmental agreements, as mentioned, contain provisions that require the t- transfer of technology and financial means and provisions that establish a financial mechanism. <clears throat> the, transfer technology, the transfer of technology and finances, to a large extent, takes place through funds linked to the World Bank, such as the Global Environment Facility, which functions as the financial mechanism for most multilateral environmental agreements. In addition, the World Bank and the Global Environment Fund also administer other funds that contribute to the implementation of multilateral environmental agreements, in particular the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Relevant examples are the Prototype Carbon Fund, the Biocarbon Fund and the Least Developed Country Fund. Due to this manner of proceeding, the World Bank is in a position to play a coordinating role in international environmental law, especially in the South-North context. Based on decisions taken by the conferences of the parties to multilateral environmental agreements, competences have thus been attributed to the World Bank and funds linked to the Bank. As a result, a shift in decision-making procedures has taken place from the one-state, one-vote system, and in practice mostly decision-making by consensus, which is prevalent in the multilateral environmental agreements, to the weighted voting system employed in the World Bank, or to the various decision-making procedures applied by the funds. And the decision-making procedures applied by the funds include, for example, equal participation of donor and recipient states in the Global Environment Facility, and decision-making by both public and private entities from developed states that invest in the prototype carbon fund. This complex institutional and decision-making structure has given rise to a body of norms and decision-making procedures, which especially due to the large-scale involvement of international institutions qualify as international administrative law. Within this body of law, international institutions exercise decision-making powers that can be characterized as of a public nature. The conferences of the parties, the World Bank, the Global Environment Facility, and the various funds discussed in this lecture provide relevant examples. I now turn to address the broader context in which the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities operates. As mentioned earlier, the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities can be understood as the translation of the principle of intragenerational equity to the interstate level. At that interstate level, it signals a, way, uh, it signals a move away from the consequences associated with the formal equality of states, a prominent assumption in the traditional doctrine of international law. Formal equality entails that de jure, that is, in terms of law, all states are assumed to be equal and, importantly, subject to the same rights and duties, regardless of their socio-economic characteristics. This assumption entails that traditional international law did not play a significant role in decreasing, de de facto, the real inequalities between developing and developed states. During the 1970s, these inequalities resulted in calls for the establishment of a new international economic order on the part of developing states. While the new international economic order never emerged, articulation of environmental problems as of common concern provided developing states with an opportunity to voice their demands regarding a more equitable international legal order and assistance from developed states. These demands, as illustrated by the principle of common but differentiated responsibility, have resounded in international environmental law. Thereover is also another story to the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities. This story concerns the manner in which it has been implemented, and it concerns incremental cost, conditionalities and the economic benefits that developed states may obtain as a a result of certain mechanisms that implement the principle. The notion of incremental cost entails that developed states, through the Global Environment Facility and other funds, contribute to the extra cost that a developing state incurs when it contributes to the protection of the global environment through the implementation of a multilateral environmental agreement. In other words, a developing state that plans to undertake a project for national benefit may request funding from the global environment facilities for purposes of transforming that project into a more environmentally friendly project that benefits the global environment. An example would be the transformation of a national power generation project from a coal to a solar energy-based project, where the extra cost involved in the transformation would be eligible for funding by the Global Environment Facility. Payment, thus, is for the protection of the global environment from which both developed and developing countries profit. The transfer of financial means and technology, furthermore, is conditional of course, upon developing states meeting the standards set out in multilateral environmental agreements, but also upon the decisions subsequently adopted by the Conference of the Parties to a multilateral environmental agreement or other subsidiary bodies, and also to the decisions taken by the various bodies that manage the funds related to the bank. In addition, developed states and the private sector in developed states may benefit from projects that are supported, that support the implementation of multilateral environmental agreements in developing state. Cases in points are projects implemented on the basis of the flexible mechanisms of the Kyoto Protocol. For example, through the prototype carbon fund or the clean development mechanism. In this case, developed states and the private sector in developed states may pursue profit by obtaining cheap emission reduction units by investing in carbon reduction projects in in developing states. These units may then be used by developed states to meet their targets under the Kyoto Protocol or can be sold for profit on the global carbon market. These elements, in conjunction with the institutional setting set out in this lecture, have led some commentators to suggest that the manner in which the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities has been implemented has contributed to developed states and institutions in which developed states have a major say, maintaining a disproportionate influence on international environmental policy and law. I now turn to address the legal status of the Principle of Common but Differentiated Responsibilities. The Principle of Common but Differentiated Responsibilities clearly has normative implications, i.e. implying commitments, possibly duties, on the part of developed states vis-à-vis developing states. The Principle, however, is unlikely to qualify as a rule, given that it cannot apply in an all-or-nothing fashion. It is thus more likely to qualify as a principle. Whether it has legally binding status as a principle is more difficult to determine, as it is not an explicit element of the texts of most multilateral environmental agreements, the UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change being the exception. Within the climate change regime, it thus qualifies as a legally binding principle. Whereas within other multilateral environmental agreements, the norms, rules or principles formulated to implement the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities are what legally binds the parties. In terms of general international law, the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities thus is most likely to qualify as a principle of international environmental policy or as a principle of soft law that has had a profound effect on international environmental law, both in its substance and on its institutional structure. Finally, I conclude that the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities has affected international environmental law, and also perhaps uh, international law more in general, in a very fundamental manner. In particular, it has altered the discourse by changing the nature of what are considered to be valid arguments. It has given developing states a basis for claiming that their position is to be taken into account in formulating treaty regimes. Moreover, it has given developing states a basis for pursuing the position that they will not engage in meaningful meaningful obligations if developed states do not transfer funds and technology to them. In terms of the protection of the environment, one might argue that this development has come at a price economic, in in addition to ecological considerations, figure prominently in the negotiations. This is true both for developed and developing states, as the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, held in Copenhagen in December 2009, illustrated. It also means that environmental problems are being recognized for what they are, problems that if they are to be addressed, require a fundamental reassessment of how we are doing things at local, national, and global levels. Thank you for your attention.